Tonight we conclude our series on 2 Peter. We're looking tonight at uh, chapter 3, the final chapter, of course, uh, beginning at verse uh, 14. Verse 14 of 2 Peter chapter 3. Where here Peter writes, Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot and blameless, and consider that and consider that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you. Of course, as we've often said, uh, when we see a therefore, we go back to see what it's there for. And of course, the word therefore in the first verse of our study tonight takes us back to what we studied last time together. Remember, he uh, asked, uh, since all these things are going to be dissolved, talking about the end of the world, the consummation uh, of all things, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, verse 11? Literally, uh, of what country should you be, remember? What manner of persons is literally translated from a phrase that indicates of what country? Where is our citizenship? Peter is asking, where is your citizenship? Where are your loyalties? Where are your priorities? And then verse 12, remember, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. And we talked about the attitude that we should have toward uh, the coming of the Lord, toward the heavenly uh, home. Not that we cannot appreciate and enjoy and long to be with our loved ones here and enjoy the things that God has provided for us here, but we don't allow those things to preclude our earnest desire for the coming of Christ for that time when time will be no more and we can see him as he is. Looking for then and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be dissolved being on fire and the elements will melt with fervent heat. And then, of course, verse 13 of our last study. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And as we said, that new heavens and new earth expression is simply a figurative expression to describe the heavenly home. Where will be the ultimate home of the faithful? Heaven. Therefore, when Peter says we look for new heavens and a new earth and we know that the ultimate home of the faithful is heaven, therefore the new heavens and the new earth must be an expression describing that heavenly home. Now we're back to therefore with our study tonight. Therefore, because of all these things, beloved, and there's that tender expression again as he uh, tenderly uh, expresses his love for them, his concern for them, and notice this, looking forward to these things. Again, that takes us back to the attitude with which we should view the end of all things. Are we indeed uh, looking for the coming, anticipating the coming of the Lord, anticipating the time in which we uh, will be with him? You remember Paul on one occasion uh, said that he was uh, kind of in a straight between the two whether to depart and be with the Lord or whether to stay on the earth for a while longer in order to be of great benefit, obviously, with uh, his work in the kingdom to the church uh, at that time. And so while we understand and appreciate all that we have here on this earth as being precious to us and the relationships that we sustain, nonetheless, as Christians, where our citizenship is somewhere else, we look for, we look for and anticipate 
uh, the time when time will be no more and we can be uh, with him for all eternity. Looking forward to these things. What things? The things uh, that we've just reviewed in the previous uh, verses. Be diligent. Be diligent. Not be lackadaisical. Not simply uh, sit around and wait, but be diligent, earnestly make every effort as you live the Christian life. The Christian life is a life that is not passive. It is a life that is clearly active. It's a life in which we are to gain ground every day. And we'll talk more about that in the final verse of this, uh, of this epistle with verse 18. But we are to gain ground. I'm pressing on the upward way, new heights I'm gaining every day. That great old hymn reminds us of a great biblical truth, and that is that we are moving forward, that we are gaining ground or should be gaining ground with every passing day as we apply ourselves to those things that indeed are spiritual in nature and that will cause us to move on to higher ground. Be diligent then to be what? To be found by him. You know, just stop right there and be reminded of the fact that the time is coming if we happen to live until the Lord comes again, and even if we don't and we're raised, uh, we're raised at his coming, we are all going to be found by him. Every soul that has ever lived will be found by him. Now, there may be those who would like not to be found by him. In fact, obviously there will be, tragically, a great many people who would rather not be found by him when that day comes, when he comes again. Why? Because they have not prepared themselves to be found. To be found by him in a certain state. What state is that? Not the state of Tennessee or the state of Alabama, not those states but in a state that Peter describes as what? In peace, without spot, and blameless. That's what we're being diligent to do. That's what we should be earnestly striving every day that we live to do, to live in such a way so if that is the day, if that is the day, and we do not know whether this day will end or that he will come before this day ends, we don't know. And it doesn't have to be the matter of his uh, coming, does it? This day may not end for some of us because death will intervene. The Lord may not come again before, before this day is, has ended, but any one or more of us could die before this day ends. And so our, our responsibility, our privilege really, is to labor diligently and lovingly to be found by him Regardless of what happens, whether I pillow my head tonight and I never wake to see another sunrise, that I would be found by him in a certain state. A state of what? Being in peace. With whom? With God, obviously, and most importantly. But at peace with my fellow man as well. In the Roman letter, Paul reminds us that we, as much as in us lies, as far as it's possible with us, we're to live at peace with all men. And certainly that peace should be characterized by those of us who are brothers and sisters in Christ. We should be at peace with one another, but at peace with all men. That is, holding no grudges, not being in a situation where we're carrying around a chip on our shoulder or a grudge in our hearts, as it were, but that we are at peace because of the peace that surpasses all understanding, that belongs only to those who are in Christ and who can be found 
in him, without spot and blameless. You know, the phrase without spot and blameless is very, very similar to a phrase Peter used in the first epistle at chapter 1 and verse 19, where he spoke about the redemption that these Christians to whom he wrote, the redemption that they had enjoyed, that they had attained, how had it come? How had they been redeemed? Not with corruptible things, with uh, silver and gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. That's verse 18 of 1 Peter 1. But what? But redemption came through what? With the precious blood of Christ. And here's that phrase, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Without spot and without blemish. Very similar to this expression here in his second epistle, without spot and blameless. How can we be found, how can we found, be found by him without spot and blameless? There's only one way, and that's to be in him. To be found by him without spot and blameless, we must be in him. And only those who are in him, truly in him, will be found by him without spot and blameless. Notice blameless, not sinless, not sinless, because that's not a possibility, but forgiven and blameless because of the continual cleansing of the blood of Christ that is obtained by all those who are what? Walking in the light as he is in the light. Who are regularly confessing their sins and shortcomings to the throne of heaven through Jesus Christ, their mediator and high priest, and through that blood and the continual cleansing of that blood through that process that John describes in 1 John 1, 7 through 9. We have a peace that surpasses understanding, a joy that's unspeakable, and the anticipation of being found by him, in him, without spot, and blameless. And then he says, and consider, and consider, verse 15, consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you. We just take that word consider for a moment. Consider. Don't you wish that all the world would consider? That is, consider the things that really need to be considered. And yet most people go throughout every day, 24 hours every day, without ever considering spiritual things as they should but we should consider things properly and view things as we should in this context Peter is saying the fact that the Lord has not come and remember he talked about those who were scoffers and and uh, mockers who who came uh, saying where is the promise of uh, of his coming because you know things are continuing as they always have and he hasn't come so where is the promise of his coming? As if to say, he's not coming again. Well, Peter tells us here how it is that we should consider the long-suffering of the Lord. That is, the long-suffering in connection with the fact that he has not come. Even though it's been around 2,000 years now, and he hasn't come again. How should we view that? Should we view that as something that might cause our faith to begin to weaken and wane? Because after all, it, that's a long time. Surely, surely he would have come by now if he were coming at all. And then we look around and we see at what's happening to us uh, in this country and in the world, and we think surely it can't be long. 
And it may get worse before it gets better. And if it does, it may be that some will say, well, if the Lord were ever going to come, it'd be now. And the fact that he hasn't means that he's not. No, that's not considering the way Peter said we need to consider. How should we consider his delay in coming, in other words? How should we consider the long-suffering of our Lord? And that's how he describes the delay in his coming. How should we consider the long-suffering of our Lord? Consider it what? Salvation. Meaning what? Consider it as an opportunity for salvation. Consider it as an opportunity that God is giving mankind to be saved. Because God desires that all would be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So God is giving us opportunity And Peter says, look at that long-suffering and consider it as God's desire, if you will, that all men would be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. It gives us insight, really, another insight into the beautiful, wonderful nature of God, the God we serve. He's a loving God. He's a merciful God. He's a long-suffering God. But he is a God of justice and ultimately... Ultimately, that time will come when time will be no more and opportunity will be passed, either with his coming or with our death. But then he calls attention in connection with this statement to something interesting here as he brings in another writer, Paul. As he says, these are the same things, the things I'm writing to you about now are the things that our beloved brother Paul has also written to you about. What things? Uh, what things? Well, uh, things uh, such as uh, uh, the long-suffering of God. Uh, Romans 2, verse 4 is a passage, for example, where the Apostle Paul wrote about the long-suffering of God. Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, he wrote there, forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? Paul wrote about long-suffering. Did Paul write about the consummation of all things, the end of the world, the second coming of Christ, about which Peter has just written and to which he no doubt refers here as he brings Paul into the discussion? Of course he did. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. In the 2 Thessalonian letter, he wrote to correct the misapprehensions that those early Christians had about the second coming of Christ. So Peter is saying here, I have not only written to you about these things, but our beloved brother Paul has also written to you about these things. And it's interesting that he refers to him here as his beloved brother. And that gives us some insight into the attitude that Peter had about something that's very important to all of us, rebuke. Remember Galatians 2, 11 through 14 in that context, where, as we've already studied in the Galatian uh, letter that we're studying on Sunday morning, where... Paul rebuked Peter to his face because of the hypocrisy that he was guilty of in eating with the Gentiles before the Jewish Christians came down. But when they came down, those Jewish Christians from James, he pulled away from those Gentile Christians and played the hypocrite. They were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, as the text says, and Paul rebuked Peter. And Peter never got over it, right? No, no, no. Here, here, he refers to his beloved brother Paul. Doesn't that give us some insight into the attitude with which Peter received that rebuke? 
And doesn't that teach us a very important lesson about the attitude with which we should receive rebuke should it become necessary for that rebuke to be issued? Indeed it does. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him, Luke 17, 3 and 4. The Lord made it abundantly clear that it's incumbent upon us as brothers and sisters to help each other. And a part of that help process, as we talked about in the lesson on forgiving without grudging, a part of that helping process is at times to rebuke sin when we see it. And when we understand that sin is occurring, we love each other enough to try to help each other out of that sin. How should I respond to that if I'm the one that's in sin who's being rebuked? I should respond as Peter obviously did and didn't finish out the rest of his life holding a grudge against Paul, never mentioning him again. Not only did he mention him, but he mentioned him in very tender, loving terms as he called him a beloved brother. But there's something else into which we gain insight from this statement. And that is the inspiration with which the beloved brother Paul wrote. Because look at how he puts it. As also our beloved brother Paul, according to his wisdom. No, that's not what he says. According to the wisdom, what? Given to him. Isn't that a strong indication of inspiration to which Peter makes reference? Who gave Paul the wisdom by which he wrote the things that he wrote? God through the Holy Spirit who inspired Paul to write these things. There's something else about which we gain some insight. Paul's epistles were known by Peter at the time in which Peter wrote this epistle and they were obviously known to churches throughout the same area, Galatia, Pontus, Cappadocia, uh, the areas to which Peter penned his first epistle, not mentioned in the second, but these same, uh, these same areas are involved uh, here. And so Paul had also written to these same areas, churches in these same areas, and obviously Peter knew that, and Peter knew that these Christians to whom he wrote had some familiarity with Paul's epistles. Peter had familiarity with them. Those to whom Peter wrote also had familiarity. And they understood them to be inspired writings. The wisdom given to Paul was given from heaven as it was to Peter. You remember what Paul himself wrote in 1 Corinthians 14 verse 37? He said, if anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual... Let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. What I'm writing to you did not come from my own wisdom. They are the commandments of the Lord, and they are being given by the wisdom that's been given to me, in effect. And I believe that's how Peter expresses it here in a way that reinforces for us and reassures us that Peter knew what Paul wrote was inspired and that we should appreciate it as well. But if we had any doubt about it, we go on to the next verse and we see a reinforcement of that fact. Listen to this one. As also in all his epistles, he continues to talk about Paul and his epistles, his writings, speaking in them of these things, these things about which Peter is writing as well, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction as they do also the rest of the scriptures. Now, Paul's epistles, as we said, were known to Peter 
And to those to whom Peter wrote, this verse uh, reinforces that. These things, referring to the end of time, judgment, the long-suffering of God, etc., as we've already noted from Romans 2, 4, uh, the long-suffering of God mentioned by Paul there. But he also says here some things are hard to understand. Did he say that all things Paul wrote were hard to understand? No. He said some things were hard to understand. Did he say that some things Paul wrote were impossible to understand? No, he did not say they were impossible to understand. He said they were hard to understand, meaning that some of the things Paul wrote required a great deal of effort and mental industry in order to understand them. He did not say they were impossible to understand. Nor are we to conclude that the things about which Paul wrote that were categorized as hard to understand involved the plan of salvation. That wouldn't be the case. Nor should we assume that the things that Paul wrote that were hard to understand involved the essentials of living the Christian life. Because again, the dream of God, if you will, is that all men be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Therefore, the things that Paul and other inspired writers wrote about salvation, either how to become saved initially or how to stay saved thereafter, had to be clear and easily understood. But that's not to say that everything Paul wrote was easily understood. There are some deeper things that require more effort. And that's the beauty of Scripture. That's the beauty of the Bible. That's what, that's what about the Bible draws us back to its pages day in and day out, or should draw us back to its pages day in and day out, because it is like no other book, and every time we go there and spend any amount of quality time with it, we're going to come away blessed and far better than when we first entered into that study. Some things, not all things, are hard to understand, Peter said. Not impossible. But there are those, he said, whom he characterizes as unstable and untaught, who twist these things to their own destruction. Unstable and untaught. Does that mean uneducated? In other words, there are those who are uneducated that that twists these things. Oh, no, not by a long shot. In fact, who is it that's guilty more times than not of twisting the Scripture? Those who are highly educated. Those who are the highest educated many times, the academia nuts, not macadamia nuts, as I've mentioned before, which I like, but academia nuts are a different matter. They twist and pervert the Scripture. Because tragically, many of them educate themselves right out of any possibility of having a saving faith. And they buy into so much of this philosophy and theology that is taught in in various schools of higher learning that they twist and pervert the scriptures to their own destruction. Incidentally, what does that tell you about the possibility of apostasy? Here's another one. Here's another of the hundreds of passages in Scripture that make it abundantly clear that if I take this book and I twist it and pervert it and misapply it, then it's neither here nor there, right? Some would say, well, it doesn't matter. You have your interpretation. I have my interpretation. You interpret this the way you want to and how you feel good about it, and God will feel good about that too. There is nothing in this verse that tells you that. Nothing in this verse that tells you that. And there's everything in this verse that tells you just the opposite of that, isn't it? Which says that perverting Scripture, perverting those things that are of of importance, perverting those things that are unimportant and trying to make them important in a way that 
that affects a person's salvation, obviously. That doesn't mean that I can't have an opinion about a certain thing that is neither here nor there, not a matter of absolute uh, doctrine. Uh, where did Cain get his wife? I don't, have to be a, I don't have to know that in order to be saved, do I? And I can have an opinion about where Cain got his wife, and you might have another opinion about where Cain got his wife, and we can go to the judgment and find out for sure where he got his wife, and both of us be saved. And know the truth about that, can't we? There are some things, obviously, about which we could disagree that are not going to affect your salvation or mine. But, obviously, Peter does not have in mind those things. What he does have in mind is those things that are hard to understand that may indeed not be matters of essential doctrine, but that some twist and turn and pervert to make them matters of essential doctrine or pervert them in such a way as to cause a person to lose his soul. In other words, whatever, whatever the perversion is here, it's a perversion that leads to what? Destruction. And is that destruction not very clear in terms of what it has reference to? Eternal destruction? If you look ahead to verse 17, you see a correlation here you see a correlation because the word destruction in verse 16 drop down to verse 17 and we'll get to it in a moment but just to preview it a little bit and tie it back into this word destruction you therefore beloved since you know this beforehand beware lest you also the word also is important lest you also what fall so verse 16 some people twist the scriptures to their own destruction now you beware, lest you also what? Fall. So to twist the scriptures to your destruction is equivalent to what? Falling. Falling. And who would declare that falling doesn't have reference to falling from grace? To losing one's salvation. Before we leave verse 16, though, notice something else. As they do also the rest of the what? Scriptures. The rest of the scriptures. What did Peter call Paul's writings? What did he call the writings even of the Old Testament? What did he call them? Scriptures. Scriptures. They are inspired of God. And then verses 17 and 18 as we close. You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, Beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. Verse 18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. Look at the word beware in verse 17. Look at the word grow in verse 18. It's been said that these two words with their meaning comprise really the essence of this entire epistle. Beware, beware of falling through falling prey to false teachers and false teaching and what? Grow. What's the antidote? <laughs> Grow. What's the What's the prevention? What's the insurance policy, if you will, against falling prey to false teaching 
and falling away. The insurance policy is right here, but you've got to use it. You've got to grow. Otherwise, you fall away ultimately without that diligence, without that attention. So we could say guard and grow are two key words here in verse 17 and verse 18. Beware, guard yourself against those things that will lead you astray. How can you best do it? By growing. How can you grow? Oh, sermons could be preached on that subject alone, couldn't they? Because you grow in favor, grace, favor with God and Christ as you grow in what? Knowledge. And how do you grow in knowledge? By feeding upon this word. And where do you feed upon this word? In assemblies such as this. And out of assemblies such as this. In your home. In your Bible study. That you take seriously. And that you engage in diligently and regularly. And in your prayer life. Which is fervent and constant. As you do all of those things. That will guard you from falling. Enable you to be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. In 1 Corinthians 16, 13, Paul said, Watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong. How can you do those things? You can't do them without this. And simply owning one or more than one won't do it, will it? but feeding upon it, growing in favor with God and Christ as you grow in knowledge. And then he concludes, to him be the glory, both now and forever. Amen. To him be the glory. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you gave me to do. Those were the words of Jesus in a prayer prayed fervently not long before his betrayal. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you gave me to do. Should we be able to say that as followers of Jesus, as we near the end of our lives? Indeed. To him be the glory where? Both now and when? Forever. And that word forever literally is translated from to the day of eternity. Now and literally to the day of eternity. That's an interesting expression, isn't it? The day of eternity. Have you ever thought about eternity as a day? You can and you should because it is. But what kind of day is the day of eternity? One that never ends. No night. No end. From now, glorify him now and prepare, therefore, to glorify him in the day of eternity, in that glorious day that will never end. But you can't glorify him if you're not in him. You can't be found by him without spot and blameless, as we've studied tonight, as we've already said, without being in him. And there is no way to be in him except through obedience to the gospel, which places you in him. As you believe in him, repent of your sins as he has told us to do, confess him to be the Christ, and are buried with him in baptism for the forgiveness of sins. 
to rise with him, to walk in newness of life, continuing that walk in the Christian life to ultimately be found by him, in him, without spot and blameless. Will you obey the gospel tonight if you haven't? Will you come home to your first love if you've wandered away and know that you have fallen from your own steadfastness and that you need to come home and be restored? We plead with you to do that. As we stand to sing, will you come?